I'm Grant, an engineering and technology leader who will share the secrets of IT with you. Listen up, because we're about to get into it. Hey everybody, happy Labor Day, since that's when I'm recording this. You may or may not know, but I have a extremely long list of potential topics to talk about on this podcast. I happen to have a very limited amount of time to produce these episodes, so I try and work my list top to bottom and prioritize it so that the next episode that I get is the most interesting or the most relevant topics um, on my mind to share with you all. But from time to time, people will uh, send me messages and emails and such and request episodes. And so there was a fellow by the name of Daniel who sent me a really kind email this past week. And so he had some suggestions on topics that I could cover for you all. So I'm going to cover one of those today regarding tech stack and tech stack architecture. So the longer you're in tech, the more you're going to find yourself using words and phrases that you just get and forget you ever had to learn what it meant in the first place. Especially if you've been in the field 15 years or longer, there are going to be terms that have popped up and disappeared that may still be in your vocabulary, but people new to the industry may not have learned or may not have an opportunity to learn because it was old tech, so to speak. Um, one of the words that I use pretty regularly is ping, because that's how you would hit an IP address to see if it's alive. You just type in ping in the command prompt in the uh, IP address, and then you'll see if you get a response or not from that endpoint. And so that's one that I just use like, hey, ping me later if you need uh, something from me. And I use that a lot at work. I use it actually outside of the office too. And thankfully that one is more accessible in day-to-day uh, -day language. I think even if you don't know that I'm talking about IP addresses and pinging, you'll still understand the meaning of the word ping if I say it that way. But there is actually an underlying meaning is tied directly to my field of work. And I forget that I ever had to really learn what that meant. And so there are plenty of terms like this. And I think tech stack is actually one of them. Uh, it makes perfect sense to me, like when I say, hey, define your tech stack. But maybe that's something we should do today is define what a tech stack is. Like what's even meant by that term? It seems so foundational and fundamental to me these days. But um, I forgot, you know, maybe 10 years ago in my uh, career, I had to actually start thinking about the tech stack. As I moved up from entry-level developer to mid to senior-level developer, uh, tech stack was something that became more and more important to me because it has implications for hiring people onto the team or for building a product that isn't messy. If you've got multiple front-end interfaces kind of warring over each other, your product doesn't look good, it's hard to maintain, and those are the types of decisions that are part of the definition of tech stack. So before we get to talk about specific technologies in a tech stack, let's just define what this word means up front. A tech stack is a list of all the technologies used to create a product. It's called a stack because the components typically stack one on top of the other until you get to the top layer, which is presented to a user of the product. So each layer is really an abstraction or an interface so that the layer on top can access all the functionality of the layer underneath. I think maybe a good analogy here, if uh, that explanation doesn't make perfect sense to you, would be, let's use a car. You as the user are sitting in the car and you've got the steering wheel, the brake pedal, and the gas pedal. 
And those three are just the interface for you to access the underlying functionality of the vehicle. The steering wheel gives you access to the wheels. You don't have to worry about what's between you and the wheels. You just know that if you turn the steering wheel, the wheels turn too. And the same thing is true with the gas and the brake pedal. So the, the pedals and the wheel are kind of like the user interface. And underneath there is another layer of technology that drives the, uh, the, the throttle and drives the wheels, the steering column, and also drives the brake system. So those are all details that don't matter to you as the, the user of the car, but are extremely important to the functioning of the car. So that's what I'm talking about when I say an abstraction layer that gives access to all the functionality of the layer below it. Because in this example of the car, the, uh, the pedals and the wheel would be the top layer of the technology stack. It's the part that's presented to the user. All right, so that's enough analogies for now. Let's go ahead and get right back to actual technology. So in practice, in my mind at least, a tech stack usually lives in the software world, and my brain doesn't like to include infrastructure, operating systems, or hardware in the tech stack, even though it technically belongs. It's uh, If you leave those things out, it's an incomplete view of the tech stack, but the reason why my brain has a hard time including them is because in my experience, those things are picked one time and then kind of left alone for long periods on end, sometimes years. In fact, uh, some of the software that I've worked on, uh, we'll talk about the flight planning system from Southwest Airlines. It had been written specifically for an Itanium processor. Well, as you know, the Itanium processor has been discontinued. It's no longer being produced. So that hardware part of the tech stack was immutable. You could not change that thing at all because the software was written specifically for an Itanium processor. So it's not like you're going to be buying new hardware to run your application on anytime soon. You're really stuck with that server, that processor in your data center until you decide to change your flight planning engine or the people who own the flight planning engine upgrade it to not have to run on an Itanium processor. So that's why, at least in my brain, I have a hard time including hardware as part of the tech stack. It's not that it doesn't belong there. It's just that once you pick it, it usually sits there and just does the job you need it to do for such a long time. You don't have to revisit it. It's not an active part of your decision-making process from week to week or month to month like architecture is, like software architecture is. Now, I think we've gotten to a good point where we can start talking through the different layers of the tech stack. And this example is going to be from a server-side tech stack. In other words, your customers will be reaching out across the internet or a network to obtain data from the server. That means the data doesn't live on their local PC, but it's something that you are hosting and you will secure for them and they can access it at any point in time. It's like Facebook, right? You are at home on your browser. You type in facebook.com and you reach out across the internet to Facebook's data centers and their warehouses. But those are the that's the server side. The thing that Facebook owns is the server side in this example, okay? So the, the lowest layer, the foundation or the bottom layer is the infrastructure. It's the physical servers or the cloud that you're going to run your code on. Up one level from there is the operating system. Just because you got hardware doesn't mean it does anything. You have to have an operating system loaded on the hardware in order to get the computer to do stuff. Up above the operating system is a container or a web server. 
Usually you don't just run applications raw on the operating system, but they're contained within something like a Docker container or a cryo container or a web server like WebSphere. I don't want to go too in depth in any of these right now. I will hit them all here in just a second. But uh, to recap, infrastructure, operating system, container or web server. Next, you've got the database, then the back end, middleware components, and then your front end. And that front end is what you will display to your user. That's their access point for the tech stack. A tech stack is not an exact science necessarily. There may be layers that you're going to hear about that weren't in the example I just used. And there could be a thousand reasons for that. Uh, maybe it's a new emerging technology, or maybe the uh, next thing that you're going to hear about isn't going to be a server-side tech stack, but a client-side tech stack. So context here does matter. Um, and even in the, the layer of this stack for the container or the web server component, you may not have a container or a web server. Like I said, you don't oftentimes run applications just raw on the operating system. It, if someone were to compromise your application, that means they would get access to the computer that uh, it's running on. If you are perhaps running your application in uh, some sort of a super user or power user mode with escalated per permissions, uh, like an administrator, then if they compromise your application, they now have administrative access to the computer that it's running on. That's one reason why we put things in containers, so that if they do compromise your application, they only get access to what's inside the container and not the full operating system and server that the application is running on. So like I said, not every single one of these layers may be applicable to you in your context, but for a generic server-side tech stack, that's what it looks like. It's, uh, what is that, seven different layers here um, before it gets presented to the user. So now let's dive into each one of these layers one by one and talk about the nuance here, which is, yes, it's a layer, but a layer has a lot of junk contained inside of it. Remember, these are abstractions so that the layer above can get access to all the functionality of the layers below. So in each of these layers, there's a ton of stuff that you can dig into. So let's revisit that first layer, the infrastructure layer. This is your server or your cloud. Uh, probably other things you could run on, but those are the two distinctions in my mind. If I'm going to run a, a server in my own house and open up the public IP to the internet so people can access it, or if I'm going to buy... Um, a server from a web host or get on AWS or GCP and run something on their cloud through a public IP address and their magical secret servers that are quote unquote in the cloud. You don't really know what you're running on just in a data center somewhere owned by Amazon or Google. And for most purposes, that's fine. I think I can go down a, a little rabbit hole here for a second, but once upon a time, uh, my team at work was building a automatic provisioning system for developers to be able to get resources from the cloud. So as a developer, you'd say, hey, I want to build an application. I think I need a lot of compute and very little memory. So you would go out, click a button, get your uh, cloud resources provisioned for you and be off and running, writing your application. 
one of the people that in a fairly senior leadership position believed just with all her heart that developers are going to care exactly what processor, what brand, is it a uh, AMD or is it an Intel processor running their application? Or what brand is the hard drive in the, in the server on the cloud? Or what's the brand of the RAM? How much memory does this thing have? Which how much memory is important, but the brand, in my opinion, doesn't matter. So she and I got into a big fight over this at work, and she had the support of other senior leaders who were friends of hers. And uh, fact of the matter is, she was completely wrong. She was too close to the hardware because she worked in the IT operations group at this company. So her day-to-day was all about the data centers and the clouds and the, the hardware that was being installed on the racks. And those things did matter to her, but my background was in software engineering. And I'll tell you, if the hardware will run my application, I don't care what the hardware is most of the time. Now, the example I gave you from Southwest Airlines, where the Itanium processor was the only thing that would run the software, that matters a whole lot. But in general, I want enough compute and enough memory to run my application, and I want enough data storage to be able to handle all the data needs. Outside of those three constraints, well, networking, maybe, uh, make sure I can get enough traffic in and out of my uh, compute. But really, there are very few constraints that you're looking for when you're trying to get your application deployed. Now, again, this goes right back to the reason why the infrastructure is not a really a physical part of the tech stack in my brain. Because these are the things you pick it, and if you have to scale later, then you will scale later or replace your hardware. But once you pick this thing, it's like, I need a large instance. Boom, you're off, you're running, your, your software is good, and then you just forget about it and just keep redeploying to the same hardware until it fails or something happens. Next up, we've got the operating system. And now, I'm a Linux guy. I almost always install Linux on my server-side uh, computers. When I'm using a personal computer, uh, because I do a lot of video gaming, I generally use Windows, but if I don't use a Windows, then it's usually on a Mac, and I'm just pretty versatile in those two worlds, and, and Linux is the one that I do all of my software development on. So even on a Windows box, what I'll do is I've got SigWin, uh, which is like a, a Linux emulator. I run that on my Windows box, and I can use all of the normal commands for uh traversing the operating system, right? LS instead of DIR to list out all the files in a directory, things like that. It just makes it a lot easier to do software development on a Windows box, I find, because I'm so comfortable and used to doing Linux. But when I'm running a server, I always install Linux on it because I'm just super used to it, right? There's no wrong way to go about doing that. You can totally run Windows on a server uh, if that's what you want but I find generally Linux is what most developers are, are comfortable with. Only in situations where Windows is a massive component of the enterprise have I found Windows servers. And in those places, I would say they use Outlook, they use Microsoft Teams, they probably use Skype for all their video calls. Um, if Skype isn't integrated with Teams, that is. Thinking out loud here, but it would be a Microsoft ecosystem is the point I'm trying to get to. I have known entire companies and entire organizations and big companies to go completely in on Microsoft, going as far as using C-sharp for all their development um, as well. And uh, they live in their own little ecosystem because Microsoft products integrate really well with one another. So there is a bonus there. 
So in general though, operating system Linux, very easy to install, very easy to use, very versatile, and also very powerful for running all of the stuff that is necessary to be run on a server. There's not just Windows, Linux, and Mac that you've got to choose from, from running on your server, but those are the three that are generally picked from. And Linux itself has a thousand different distribution types. There's a Red Hat, there's Suzy Linux, Ubuntu, Gentoo, uh, you name it. There's a, a thousand different varieties. Under the hood, they all use the same, it's called the kernel, right? That's the thing that's similar across all those different packages. Uh, but the ecosystem itself is a little bit more variable. If you go from Ubuntu to Red Hat, you'll feel the difference there. Once you've got your hardware and your operating system picked, the next step is to figure out how you're going to run your application. Are you going to run it in a container or are you going to run it in a web server? And I would highly recommend you don't just run it flat on your server. <laughs> we discussed that earlier. So your container or your web server is a place, an environment for your software to run in. And that's the trend these days is to isolate your application more and more and only give it the amount of permissions that it requires in order to do its job. Again, as I stated earlier, if someone were to compromise your application and get access to the container runtime environment, then they are going to be stuck inside that container. They're not going to get access to anything outside of that container. Outside of that container is probably where your data is being stored. Sensitive personal information of customers and encryption keys and probably hashes of passwords too. Things you don't want a hacker to get a hold of are going to be out there. So that's why you want things running inside of a container. Now, when you're picking a container runtime environment, I'm gonna suggest that you start with Docker because Docker is fairly versatile. If you wanna run on a Kubernetes cluster, you can. Kubernetes is really a container orchestration engine and Docker is the container that it would run. So you can use both of those things together, but Docker is also open source. There's a ton of documentation and examples of how to use it readily available. So it's a really great choice for you to be able to integrate with any of the cloud providers any of the container orchestration engines or just kind of run it standalone on its own, you'll be fine in any of those scenarios. But Docker is the direction I would go in for containerization at this time. When you're running containers, there is a phrase that goes along with this too, and you'll hear cattle, not pets. And the whole point there is that your containers are not supposed to be fawned over and long living and just tweaked and, and worked on constantly, right? That's what you do with a pet. You take care for it, you feed it, you love it. Uh, with cattle, what you do is you raise them in bulk and then you kill them and you raise more. So the whole point there is you really wanna be hands off with your containers. If there's something wrong with your container, kill it off and then just restart a new one. You don't have to spend time editing your container while it's running to make sure it's, it's all tweaked and working perfectly. That's an anti-pattern for how to use a container. So when you are building your containers, make sure that everything is done in code and you can kill them off and spin them back up very quickly. That's another benefit that you get with a container. There are also jokes that come with containers. So in ages past, when you wrote software, you would package it up and ship it as an executable, and then someone would complain that it didn't work for them. Inevitably, that's just how it was. 
their computer is different than your computer. And your response would be, well, it worked on my machine. And that's where the joke starts, because basically a container runtime is the equivalent of packaging up your machine and its configuration and shipping that with your software. So it's kind of like a, I gave up, I can't figure out how to distribute code, so I'm just going to package up my machine and ship it around the world for everybody to run it on. And then I don't have to ever say, well, it worked on my machine because you got my machine too. So another benefit of a container. Now, next in the tech stack, we've got the database. And this part is where it gets tricky for me because in my brain, the database is sort of off on the side. Because at this point, you can really start building things in parallel. You could build your front end, your middleware, back end, and your database components all at the same time. But the database should technically come above the web server and containers in the stack and below the back end because a back end without a database can't really do a ton of things. Data storage and access is what gives the back end so much power. Why is it called the back end? Because it runs in your data center or on your cloud and not on your user's computer. It's the back end of the software. It's where all the power is at. Your user's computer runs the front end code and the server runs the back end. And middleware integrates bits of the back end to itself, especially in microservice architectures, and to the front end. So I hope that didn't confuse you at all, throwing around back end, middleware, and front end, and database a whole lot right now. So let's disambiguate these terms. Let's use an example. So I've used this example before, so I'll stick with it. A budgeting app. So the front end would be your user interface. Let's say it's a mobile application, and on this interface you have a list of budget categories and a total dollar amount for the budget of that category of expense. The front end may integrate with the back end and use a middleware layer to perform authentication. The middleware layer may also provide a consistent framework for securely accessing bank transactions. The back end would use this middleware layer to access data and share it with the front end to be displayed to the user. Now, where does the middleware actually execute? Probably in the back end, but it's not back end code. And I'll explain that why here in a second. But the front-end components, even though they display data, are not the long-term data store. So you could effectively kill off the front-end at just about any point in time and not lose data because it's stored in the database. When the front-end starts back up, it then contacts the back-end, which looks up the data and shares it with the front-end for display again. So that's the definition of a tech stack. Now, you may be thinking, cool, Grant. That's great and all, but it isn't very specific. What's actually in my tech stack? You said you would mention that. So excellent. Let's be more specific here. So let's go back to the budgeting app. For each layer in the stack, let's just go ahead and make a decision and you'll get to see what's involved in each of these layers. So for infrastructure, let's use AWS. Why? Well, for one, I don't own a data center or a server that's publicly exposed to the internet. I'm just going to sign up and let's go ahead and get a T2 Micro Elastic Compute Cloud or EC2 instance. I've used it before. This budgeting app is currently just an idea, so I could use a cheap T2 Micro to do some testing and development and scale it up to a T2 Large or bigger instance later. I could also scale horizontally depending on how I build my application, but I'll probably want to scale in both directions, uh, also known as scaling diagonally, in order to serve thousands of customers eventually, but that's down the road. For now, T2 micro instances are also part of the free AWS tier, so I can use it and not have to pay anything for a year while I develop. 
AWS is also a widely hireable skill set. So I can find engineers with this skill set in the market. So you can see there's a bunch of reasons why I might go with a cloud instance, and they're not all technical. The amount of talent and skill available to work in AWS is, is uh, readily available, right? So that's a, being able to hire for this is also part of the decision-making process. For the operating system here, as I shared before, I'm a Linux guy, so I'm gonna go with Linux. The good news is that if you're familiar with one flavor of Linux, then you're probably gonna be pretty comfortable with all of them. Even though uh, they do all have their distinctions, I've personally used Ubuntu, Suzy, Red Hat, and a variety of other versions of Linux pretty frequently. So Amazon Linux, their special version of Linux, will be just fine. It's one of the versions that can be put on your EC2 instance. Spoiler alert, I have already used it in an EC2 instance and it worked just fine. So there really is no learning curve to pick up to use Amazon Linux versus any other distribution. Next, we got to pick a container. AWS is currently creating an EC2 container service, so we can't just use their containerization seamlessly yet, but it will use Docker. So let's just use Docker on our own since I'm already a fan and it's going to be coming later from AWS anyways. This means we're going to be able to create Docker files and when we do eventually port over to the EC2 container service, if we choose to port it into their environment, usually there's an upcharge for that type of a thing, then we'll already have a Docker file and it'll probably just take some small tweaking in order to take advantage of their new service. Next we got database. So I like MySQL. It's a relational database management system or an RDBMS. So I'll stick with what I know and go with SQL. SQL, or SQL, is a language that many folks know, so it won't be hard to find this skill set and a programmer who's familiar with it and data access layers or data access objects. Could I have gone with something like NoSQL? Yes, but for a budgeting app, we're gonna have categories and dollar amounts and data associated to those categories. It's these types of relationships between the data that makes me want to pick a relational database over a NoSQL approach, although one could just think of the problem differently and be fine choosing a NoSQL database and storing their data in a different format. I just don't want to go that direction at this point in time, so I'm going to stick with what I know. And sometimes that's enough of a reason just to make a decision and go with it. You know, the beauty of technology is that later, if we get stuck and we realize, oh no, a MySQL database won't do the job here, which it will definitely do the job here, but say we get stuck in a corner and we feel like, oh no, it's the end of the world. Well, you can always just redo things in the NoSQL database later. Maybe as you're developing it, and you start to get familiar with some of the technology, if, if any of it's new to you, you may learn, it's like, oh my gosh, it'd be so easy just to take some JSON and shove it into a NoSQL database right here. Maybe we should rethink our choice of MySQL. That's a valid way to go about building software. That's a valid thing to, to uncover or discover as you're building the software. Now, a very experienced architect will help you not fall into that situation. I mean, it's not good to, to rework parts of your application, but it's okay if you do. Sometimes it happens, but that's the whole point of an architect is to have someone who's very experienced and can have a coherent tech stack and decision-making process behind all of these technical decisions. Now, in this example, it's probably not the best example. I already know how to build this budgeting app. I've done it multiple times just to learn different technologies in this tech stack world that I'm talking about. 
So this really isn't the best example for it, but you could probably take this example and extend it and think of a, a situation in your own career maybe where you didn't necessarily know all of the ins and outs of some part of the tech stack. And as you started writing that bit of code, maybe it was Java, like say you're a Python person, but you had to write it in Java. As you learned more about what Java is capable of doing, you may have discovered, oh my gosh, this would be a great use case for insert other technology here, right? And that would be something you discovered. And it's like, maybe we should pivot the whole direction of the application and use, take advantage of this new thing that I learned. Um, so anyways, uh, I'm getting off on a side tangent here, but I think those are all, discovery is good. It's an okay thing to do as you're going through building an application. All right, now we're done with the database. So the next thing is the backend. This is one of my favorite parts of the tech stack because this is where the programming languages come in. So in the backend, uh, the code that's going to run there is what will run on my EC2 instance. And because I'm very familiar with Java, and it's a widely known and easily hireable skill set in the market with lots of tools and easy web server frameworks like Spring that can get you going quickly, I'll go ahead and choose Java for my backend language in this example for those reasons. I could have just as easily chosen Node.js or Python using the Flask framework. Node.js is JavaScript based, so engineers who know Node could possibly write front end code as well but it's not plug and play really. It's not as simple as, oh, they're both JavaScript based. There really is some specialization needed to understand Node.js and to know a front end framework, but there is an overlap there in the programming language, which means it may perhaps be easy for them to pick up if time were invested and they wanted to be um, a full stack engineer, because that's effectively what you're doing here. You're taking back-ended front-end software and putting them into one person as a skill set they can switch between. That's what full stack is. And despite the names, you may know this already, but maybe not, Java and JavaScript are absolutely nothing alike. It's like comparing French and Japanese languages. Yes, they're both languages, but that's about all they have in common. So Java and JavaScript, the name Java, the fact that they share that is a misnomer. Don't consider them similar at all. And the issue with Python here is that the skill set is not as prevalent in the market for enterprise web applications. So I may not be able to hire that talent that I need as easily if Python's a core component of my tech stack. Yes, there are tons of Python developers out there, but there are more Java developers. I know that one from experience. And uh, Python itself is a great language, but it is more used in machine learning and AI fields. That's just due to the amount of tools that have been built up in that ecosystem for those use cases. So if I'm hiring for a Python developer, I may end up finding a whole lot of people who are trying to change out of data engineering or machine learning and become a more traditional software engineer. So that's going to flavor the candidate pool as well that I've got here to hire for. So I want to stick with Java um, for tons of reasons here. So the next thing we got to think about are the middleware components. And I'm actually going to leave this alone for now. Middleware are oftentimes just internal tools that are built to glue components together. And those things emerge as the application you're building scales, and they emerge pretty frequently at large companies. So for example, let's say you're at a small company with one team accessing the database. Over time, this team is going to build their own library, which houses the data access layer. Then another team and another are going to get hired because the company is successful. Okay, just an example. I'm making this up as I go. 
These other teams, as the company grows, are also going to build their own libraries and data access layers because they got to get to the database also. So this is inefficient, obviously, and it's dangerous because who knows what bugs are in which libraries and how they can affect the data. This makes debugging hard and is going to be duplicated effort across multiple teams. So at this point, it may be a good idea to create a single library to house the data access layer, and that library can be shared across all the teams. So that is an example of how a middleware component would emerge. You may build those at small companies, but you're definitely going to build them at large companies, and it's really just a unified location for some functionality that can be shared across teams. It's not part of your back end, it's not really part of your front end, but it glues things together in the middle. And now it's time to think about the front end. So we could build a web interface with React, but in this example, I actually want to go mobile native. So let's go ahead and, and think we're going to build a full iOS application. That does mean we'll probably eventually have to build an Android application, and possibly a web application also, but much later, and the web app would obviously be accessed through a browser. Those are all problems for another day. For my business, for right now, I believe strongly, for whatever reason, that iOS users will care the most about my product, so I'm going to cater to them and go native in the iOS ecosystem. I may end up being wrong about how I've identified my core user base here, but as you listen to this podcast, I want you to recognize that I'm building a product for a particular user and I've, that I've identified and I'm ignoring everyone else, right? No matter what product you're building, you need to know who your users are and then tailor your product roadmap and deliverables to that individual uh, persona. Android users and web browsers don't matter to me right now because I don't have infinity time and money to build everything for everybody all at once. So in this example, what I've done is taken the uh, iPhone users, the Android users, and everybody else and kind of segmented them out into different markets. And I've picked one of those that I think is going to give me the biggest return on my invested time. Now, also in this application, we're really just talking about the front end here. I've got all of my shared backend components and everything underneath the tech stack to support whatever front end I want to build. So if I do build an iOS application and realize maybe that's really not the biggest return on my investment later, well, I can always shift or pivot and go start building an Android application or a web application, uh, a, a web front end. And you heard me say the word React earlier, and I'm afraid that may have triggered some people out there as I start talking about mobile native apps, because technically, if you're using React on your front end, you could you could deploy that as an uh, iPhone app or an Android app or as a web app that you access through the browser. React is one of the tools that you can use to write once, run anywhere kind of a model. And I've used multiple technologies that promise to do that well throughout history, and absolutely none of them have worked well. But I will say React is one of the most promising technologies in that space. Now, as to why I don't like using technologies like that to build once, run anywhere, is because it sounds great, but it doesn't actually work in practice as well as you would hope. Um, some of the earlier technologies that I used when I would build and run this thing on Android, the app looked mostly okay, but when I deployed on iOS, the uh, I think it's called rubber banding. It's when you uh, swipe the screen and it bounces back to its original position, like if you're doing a refresh or something. 
when I tried to do that on the mobile app, it just didn't look right. And I had to tweak and tune all the values to make that rubber banding effect work properly. And so um, that may or may not be a problem that React has today, but it will have different problems. Now, unfortunately, I'm not a React expert, so I can't name these off the top of my head. But one that I am aware of is the fact that with React, you're going to be writing a whole lot of JavaScript code. And so you will get an app that will run on iOS and Android, but it's not native running on those platforms, right? It's JavaScript that's getting interpreted into functions and functionality on those devices. And the catch there is also your developers are going to be JavaScript developers. They're not going to be your native iOS or Android developers. And there, there may be, probably will be, some function in the hardware that you can't access perfectly through uh, the React interface or new hardware functionality that gets released on the, uh, the iPhone or the Android platforms that isn't in the React interface until they add it, right? So you've got to wait a little while if there's a new accelerometer type feature or something embedded in the hardware until React would provide access to that, that feature. And the last reason for now, why I'm not a huge fan of the build once run anywhere model is the fact that if you're building an application in React, you're going to be debugging JavaScript code. I think personally, this is just a, a preference of mine. It's a lot easier to debug iOS applications if you're writing it in Objective-C or Swift and using Xcode than writing a React application and trying to debug JavaScript. JavaScript has this wonderful feature of if you give it bad information or just float data around inside your program, it'll just continue to crank through even when there are errors and bad things happening. Part of that's due to the fact that it's a dynamic typed language. Any type of data can fit into a variable and get passed around. So in one part of the application, you may have thought you were putting in an integer. And then as you started continuing to write your code, by the time you get to the end of this module you're building, you forgot it was actually an integer to begin with because you were using it more like a Boolean. And JavaScript will just let you run with all those things. Uh, maybe it's a string in one location and not another. JavaScript doesn't care. It'll let you do whatever you want to. It'll make inferences on the data based on the dynamic typing that it supports under the hood. But in any case, I think I have harped on this point for way too long at this point in time. I'm not a fan of build once run anywhere yet. I think the technology will be uh, easily accessible at some point in time in the future, but we're not quite there yet. And we haven't been there for the past 15 years as people have been promising me over and over again. Oh, hey, Grant, check out this technology. It's build once run anywhere. I will believe that when I see it and when I finally build an application that is truly build once run anywhere without idiosyncrasies and nuances that come when you're building an application for different device types. All right, moving on. So I hope you can see that at each layer of the tech stack, there are an innumerable amount of possibilities and decision points that you can make. There are very little right or wrong answers here as you're going through this decision-making process. Now, some answers are better than others. If you've got a team of Java developers and you say, hey guys, we're going to start using JavaScript, then there are going to be repercussions for that. People may not be happy and you may not be very quick to build the thing that you're trying to build. So you can make better decisions, but there's no de facto right or wrong answer. Your project will not succeed or fail based on the fact that it's Java-based versus C or C++ or some other language. Like That's very rare to ever happen. 
but you should also be considering things like what type of talent is available to you. If you're in a certain geographic region of the US or the world and you've got a whole ton of Java developers local there and you have no plans to be a remote work from anywhere company, then you may want to have Java developers in your tech stack or Java in your tech stack because you've got talent available locally there that you can find good developers to help you build this application with. I don't know if that's something you're struggling with, but those are definitely the types of decisions that you should be considering as you speak with uh, your architect, if you're not the architect, in really in a partnership between the management, the architect, and the product owner. So those three roles may be the same person, or they may be three different people, um, or shared across the, the, the people, right, two people. But uh, all three of those perspectives on building an application should be considered, especially when you're choosing a tech stack. Because ideally, when you define your tech stack, you're not going to be changing it every six months or every year. It's one thing that you want to have uh, defined and then live for a while as you build your application. Now, what does a while mean? Well, it's a very fuzzy time frame. Some of the tech stacks I've worked on started off as a, a C technology stack. And then C++ was invented and came out. And then it morphed into a C slash C++ tech stack over the course of five years. And then five more years, Java came out and became a big enterprise software development um, tool set. So Java, Java was added into the tech stack. And at that point in time, the stack was about 10 years old. And so it just continued to grow. And it was split about 50-50 for its life of I think it was 25 years before it got decommissioned, but after 25 years, you had multiple things in the stack, but it was not a conglomeration of like JavaScript and Python and some Ruby thrown in there. It was, it was very limited to C, C++, and Java as the big players there. Because again, why would you want to add all these random technologies into your stack? Then you've got to have somebody who knows how to modify them and upkeep them, and that's a risk. So if you, you find your tech stack starting to grow and pick up a bunch of random technologies that are, you know, just smaller in size, like a Perl script here and a Python script there and a bash script, you may want to rewrite some of that and deprecate or retire the stuff that you don't want in your stack. Maybe get rid of Perl, convert that script into a bash script because bash is a, a widely available skill set and periodically be refreshing the technology in your stack to make sure that it's coherent and rational for what you are building. Now, there's definitely more that I could cover on the topic of tech stack, but for this episode, I'm going to stop right there. Now, we could talk about how the layers interact with one another and then architecting your tech stack for the type of application you're building, such as a big data application or a machine learning application. All of those things will change a little bit about how the stack is organized, but in general, those layers are not going to change. You're not going to swap your database below your containerization or your containerization below your operating system. There's only one way to build your stack in that layer organization, but there are different types of stacks that you may use or technologies in those layers based on what your product is that you're building. So to wrap this episode up, thank you all so much for the engagement and uh, the interaction you've given to me over email and on Twitter. If you have additional questions and thoughts uh, to send my way, please do. You can email me at hello at grantdryden.com. You can tweet me at tweets of grant 
or you can go to my website, grantdryden.com, and submit something through the form that I've got on there. I post uh, blog articles every once in a while on different technology topics, and uh, it's an easy one-stop shop to get to my LinkedIn or other places that I'm active at on the internet. So please don't be a stranger. Feel free to connect with me and talk. I would love to engage with you. And on that note, I'll see you again next time. Thank you.